Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Amen. Good morning, church. How are we? Okay. Awesome. Thank you. There's one. We've been in a series called Epiphany over the last few weeks, and Epiphany is just a fancy word uh, for saying to, to make known or to reveal. And what we've been looking at throughout Epiphany is how Christ, how Jesus himself, is now making himself known to the world. How is he revealing himself to not only us as believers, but also to the world around him? And so a couple of things that we looked at was uh, Josh kind of kicking off Epiphany with just a rule of life. And so if, if Christ is making himself known through your life, uh, not only for yourself, but those around you, then there's, there's maybe a design to uh, the fact in which he's called you to live out uh, the gospel, to live out the good news, to live out the identity of Christ. And so what does that rule of life kind of look like? And then what we wanted to look at after that was what are the spiritual uh, kind of formation that God has provided for us through Scripture that kind of drives that rule of life for us. And so what, what does it look like to, as we kind of looked at it week two, to read and to meditate on God's Word um, for kind of the, the authority and source of our life to become who we really are in Jesus? And so how do we meditate on it? How do we read it? And what is the Word of God actually doing in our lives when it comes to reviving our souls? And then in addition to that, we looked at if, if that's kind of God's communication to us for our spiritual formation, what then is our communication back to the Lord? And so we looked at prayer and how, is, how do we pray? How should we pray? What do we pray? And so that's what we talked about last week was kind of this connection of prayer aligning us to God's will and allowing us to be able to kind of give up our facade of control that we think we have and to just really be able to pray prayers that are founded upon what God has called us to pray, uh, what God has promised uh, to us that he would do, and then ultimately really the model of prayer from Jesus Christ himself. And so what, what do we pray? How do we pray when we're in desperate times, in desperate need, and how is that inviting us into kind of the intimacy that we are to have with the Lord? And, and again, how does that revive our souls? And so that's what we looked at last week. And so if you missed any of those, I'd encourage you to go back and check those out on the website. Um, and then today, really what we're looking into is, is, again, if Christ is revealing himself to us, if he's making himself known, does that have anything to do with our evangelism? Does that have anything to do with, as we become more like Christ, does that impact the world around us? Does that have any sort of effect on the world around us? Do, do they see something in us because of us becoming like Christ that then would either surprise them or that they would see it and, and then kind of turn to God or ultimately come to know Christ as their Savior? And so that's what I want to look at today is how, do, how is Jesus making himself known to unbelievers through our lives, through our lifestyle? And uh, before kind of we get into the deep end of this, I know um, that there are going to be some emails that tell me that evangelism is done when we proclaim the gospel to an unbelieving person. 
All right, so I'm going to go ahead and just save you the fact that you don't have to email that to me because I know that is true. Like I've, I've read Romans 10, 14, where it says, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him who they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So yes, I know that at one of the biggest foundational points of evangelism is the proclamation of the word of God. It is the sharing of the gospel with one another. And I think most evangelistic sermons that are teaching on evangelism are driving those points home. That the gospel must be shared, that it must be proclaimed, that it must be taught, and that it must be heard from an unbeliever, a non-believing person, in order for them to come to saving faith. And so, yes, I give a wholeheartedly amen to that. And I think if you are able to go back and look at any type of evangelistic sermon that we've taught on, that's where we've landed. That's where we've taught. That's what, and that's what we're going to continue to teach. But at the same time, one thing I've begun to notice in current evangelical Christianity is the lack of importance placed on the conduct or behavior of the Christian. So much so that we've kind of blurred the lines as to whether there's any distinction between being Christian and being non-Christian. Uh, my former pastors, mentors, Christian friends used to kind of call this your witness. Has anyone ever heard that like, phrase? Like your, your witness is how people perceive you. Like does your actions match up with what you believe? Whatever that is, is considered to be your witness. And so does your lifestyle, your conduct or behavior match up with what you say you believe about Jesus? And if it doesn't, then you will ruin your witness. I mean, that's what I was always told is if you don't practice what you preach, you will ruin your witness and no one will listen to you when you do proclaim the gospel. And so I think there's some importance to this, but what I really wanted to do is dive into the Bible of why your conduct and why your behavior is important when matched up with what you proclaim and what you teach and what you share with someone else around you. And so there is and should be a distinction between how the believer in Christ lives versus the unbeliever, the non-believer. And so what my aim is for today is to show you the connection between your conduct and your evangelism. Most evangelistic sermons, like I said, are kind of three ways to share the gospel to an unbeliever or a co-worker, or three ways to fight fear and not be ashamed of sharing, proclaiming the gospel. And again, yes and amen, I agree with those sermons, but for this one, I do want us to focus on the connection between what you do and how you behave with how God saves a non-believer. Because it's very important and I believe it's very biblical. Um, so let me read our text today and then I'm going to give you three ways you can witness with your conduct. Alright, see what I did there? I'm just going to continue with it. So turn with me to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2 we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 12, and it's going to be our main text. We'll, we'll use a lot of supporting text for this so that the Bible can interpret the Bible. But this is going to be our main text that we're going to break down, and we're probably going to be breaking this down uh, quite a bit more than what we have through Epiphany, where Epiphany has kind of been more of a topical series. This is going to be very expositional, walking through this text and breaking it down um, so that we can really see what God is, is providing for us today. So, starting in verse 9, let me read this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but you now are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So with the three points that I mentioned that I'm going to have for you today, the first one is this, your witness is who you are. Your witness is who you are. So this begins with identity, all right? This begins with defining who you are or giving a statement for who you are as a believer, as a Christian. Because to be honest with you, there are really only two identities of people that have any sort of eternal significance. There are only two identities of people that have any eternal significance. It's not male and female. It's not rich or poor. It's not educated or uneducated. It's not Republican or Democrat. It's not white or black or any other worldly category that you can think of. What ultimately matters, the two identities that have eternal significance, are whether or not you are a sinner or saint. Those are the only two identities that truly matter in the end for any sort of eternal significance. Sinner or saint. Other ways you can say that are unbeliever or believer. Non-Christian or Christian. Christ rejecter or Christ follower. That's in it regards to eternal significance. And what I mean by eternal significance is where will you be and what will you be doing 50,000 years from now? Because those other things that I mentioned don't matter 50,000 years from now. What matters 50,000 years from now is whether or not you are currently sinner or saint. And so your family name does not determine that. You shoveling snow off of your neighbor's driveway as an act of kindness does not determine that. Who you voted for does not determine where you will be 50,000 years from now. What does determine it is whether or not you have been saved by the grace of God. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this, For by grace, for by grace, God's gift to us, by grace you have been saved through faith, belief in Him. This is not your own doing, all right? Not your own doing. Nothing that you can muster up in order to receive this. Nothing you've done. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one can go to God with their salvation and say, look what I did to contribute to this. Look what I did. Look how awesome I was that you would call on me and invite me into your family because you chose me thinking that I would be the best person on the team. None of that works in this. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the grace of God, the gift of Jesus Christ, is what ultimately saves you and transfers you from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son. Or in our text that you see today, from darkness into His marvelous light. So the grace of God is what transforms you from this. From sinner destined for eternal conscious death in hell. To ultimately saint destined for eternal conscious life in heaven. And I say that to say that, that, that there are some beliefs out there that for those who don't know Jesus, for those who are not believers in Him, that there's just kind of this annihilation. Like they just cease to exist if they don't know Christ at the day of judgment, when Christ returns and just reconciles all things. And that's just not the reality. It's just not the reality. 
For those who don't have, as we celebrate in communion, the blood of Christ covering their sins and forgiving them. The wrath of God poured out on Jesus at the cross does not satisfy their sins. What then satisfies the wrath of God towards their sins are for those who will spend an eternity in hell conscious of the fact that they are separated from God and that they will receive His wrath for eternity. That's terrible. That is terrible. We wish that on nobody. Which is why we are coming to this place of evangelism and the fact that conduct and the way we conduct ourselves has something to do with us being able to share the gospel in such a way that they might see our good deeds and come to know God and come to trust in Him so that they, 50,000 years from now, are not on the wrong side of history, but are on the right side of history, being able to worship God because, again, He has forgiven them. He is their Father. He has adopted them. He has brought them in from darkness to the marvelous light. They are able to see Him and treasure Him for who He is. So once God does this work, once God saves you, you then bear a new identity. You are no longer sinner, you are considered saint. And for those who are considered saint, this is what he says of you based on our passage today. Your witness, you are, as verse 9 says, a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but you are God's people. Once you did not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are the beneficiaries of His mercy, of God's mercy. So this is identity. This is who you are. And who you are has implications for what you feel, the affections that you have, the desires that you have, which then ultimately lead to what you do. But again, it has to begin with this. In Christianity, before you ever get to a feeling or a doing, you must first understand your being. You've got to understand your being. You've got to know who you are because out of that identity flows everything else. Flows everything else. Who you are leads to what you feel and then what you do. And so let me show you this from our passage, beginning in verse 11. Beloved, that is you, saints, beloved. I urge you as sojourners, just another title for who you are, your identity. Sojourners means literally citizens of heaven. That is your identity. That is where your citizenship is, is upheld. That's why you see, and especially during elections, people constantly, Christians, rightly saying, like, we're not just Americans, we are citizens of heaven, we are sojourners. Like, that is our king. That is who we ultimately follow. Like He's always on His throne. He's always exercising His authority. So we have nothing to worry about regardless of who gets elected or who doesn't get elected. Because at the end of the day, we know who carries all authority and who is governing all the governors and who is Lord of Lords and who is King of Kings and who's doing those things. Like He is our King. He is our Lord. He is our President. Fill in the blank, whatever you want. Because we are sojourners, exiles. We are citizens now of heaven. That is our identity. That's our allegiance. That's where we belong. So as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. 
abstain, you're not making yourself, like, well, well, let me say it this way, just by the means of abstaining from the passions of the flesh does not make you a saint. Abstaining from the passions of the flesh reveals and shows that you are a saint. It reveals and shows that you are a saint. For 1 Corinthians 5, 6-7 says this, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And kind of what that's referring to is it's talking about bread and a little bit of leaven gets into it and makes its kind of way throughout the lump to where it just leavens the whole thing. What he's saying here is a little bit of sin makes the whole thing a sinner, essentially. A little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Now, if you were to read that as face value, what that is saying is by your deeds, by your works, what you need to do is put to death or get away all of the sin that is within you so that you can be a clean new person. If you were to read it at face value, that's what it sounds like. The work of getting the sin out of you is you. But again, by God's goodness to us and giving us the truth, He expounds upon it. As you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So what he's saying there is, put away, abstain from all the passions of the flesh that are within you and pursue righteousness because you actually already are righteous. So clean yourself because you actually already are clean. So this is an active participation with our new identity to be able to say no to the things that we used to say yes to when it comes to our flesh and then say yes to the things that we used to not say yes to, which is our now new righteousness, our new identity in Christ. What are the affections and desires that lead to destruction of our soul? Let's say no to those things. And what are the passions and desires that are Christ-like, that revive our soul and repair our soul and restore our soul? Let's say yes to those things. So we need to abstain from the things that were of old. And we're only able to do this because of who we now are. Are. You are already clean. You are already unleavened. So abstain from or abstain from these things. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, how do the passions of the flesh wage war against your soul? Let me answer that question this way. Your soul was made to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what your soul is designed for and made for. So then, passions of the flesh are any passions which cause you to stop marveling at the light or in the light of God. And you then begin to love other things more than you love God. Because your soul was not created for marveling in anything other than God. That is when your soul begins to shrivel up and die. When you're marveling at something that is not meant to be marveled at other than God, your soul begins to get destroyed. And this is where I believe all sorts of anxieties, all sorts of stress, all sorts of uh, just complications with your mind and with your heart begin to draw in is when we do not abstain from passions of the flesh, but give ourselves over to them, rather than replacing them, as I'll show you here in a second, to desires and affections that God has ultimately drawn us to. 
So your passions, your desires, your affections matter because they have certain outcomes. So because of who you are, abstain from the desire or affections that would lead you to have, according to our text today, poor conduct, poor behavior. So how then do you abstain from the passions of the flesh? A couple of points to consider here. One is Jesus tells us to cut off our hand or gouge out our eye. So if he's literally saying, like, if you're tempted from your flesh, just the way you used to live life before you became a believer, if you're tempted to steal, just cut off your hands. Or if you're tempted because of the passions of your flesh to lust, gouge out your eyes. It's better for you to not have a hand to not steal, and it's better for you to not have an eye if you're going to end up doing lust or, or sexual immorality or anything along those lines. This is just Jesus telling us, and from the looks on some of your faces, you're like, is there any other options on how to abstain from the passions of the flesh? Another way is to simply replace those desires. Now, it does sound less painful, at least physically. So what does that look like? How do we replace those desires? And here's what 1 Peter 1.13 says. Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's doing this mental preparing of his mind to set his hope fully on the grace of God. This is a mental work of preparation. This is a mental acknowledgement that as you walk throughout your day, there are going to be certain urges that you will feel, and you are to place or replace those urges being sober-minded, place those urges accordingly. This is going to take the work of discernment on your part. This takes in internal dialogue. This takes this constant um, um, feeling of, okay, I've got this emotion coming in. I need to kind of dissect this emotion. I need to dissect this feeling to figure out whether or not this is something that is going to lead to my soul being revived, or is this going to be something that leads to waging war against my soul, the destruction of my soul, trying to, to literally kill and steal and destroy what is within me. And so every single day, there is mental preparation where whatever we're walking through and facing, we need to be able to start categorizing these, these urges, these desires, these affections, these, whether it's passion of the flesh or is this a passion of Christ. And if it's a passion of Christ, we set our hope fully on that and we place it on that and then we act based on that. This is who we are. Let's go with that. Or if it's a passion of the flesh, if it's an urge, then we say no to that. And it might be a moment where, again, we're going to feel some temptation. We're going to feel some anxiety. We're going to feel some want towards this thing. And we are to say no to it, just like Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we looked last week, had an urge, had a desire to say no to the cup that was given to him. And the way in which he handled that was bringing it to the Lord, praying, even though he knew with his mind that this was not the cup, that, 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 that this cup had to be taken. This cup had to be the, the, the will of God in which he was going to execute the gospel. He knew that he had to do it, but he had this urge that he didn't want to do it. And so what did he do in that moment? He didn't give himself over to the urge. He didn't give himself over to saying, well, it's this... In order to remove this cup, I'm going to remove myself from this situation. I'm just going to walk away. That's not what he did. 
He brought it to the Lord. He categorized it where it was. I've got this urge. If there's any possible way for you to remove this cup from me, remove this, this, this dying at the cross that I'm about to do, if there's any other way, Lord, help me with this. And then he gave his will over. Lord, not mine, but yours. Be done. And in that moment, God said no to him. I'm not going to remove the cup from you. Because your conduct and the way in which you live your life out in the next moments are going to have eternal significance attached to them. And so Jesus continued to just be faithful and then set his hope fully on the will of his Father. And he submitted to it and he walked in perseverance. Also, as 1 Peter 2, 1-3 says, Put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. That's the work of abstaining. Putting it away, setting it to the side. And he says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Again, he's getting the identity here. If you indeed have tasted that the Lord is good, then you should have this desire within you to long for the pure spiritual milk to long for more truth in you, to long for more of God's Word to fill you up and to satisfy you like an infant being satisfied by milk. And so this is something that is restoring you. This is something that is reviving you. And so once you're there because of who you are and because of what you're now longing for, that is then going to allow you to be able to put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and slander from your life. So it's a reminding you of who you are that's able to then drive your conduct, which then drives ultimately your actions. So that's the first point. Who you are matters. Who you are determines how you deal with your passions, how you manage them. And because you are saints, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh that do not lead to a revived soul. Second thing is this. Your witness is then what you do. So if that's who you are, your witness is what you do. This is the connection between your passions and your conduct. 1 Peter 1.14 puts it this way. As obedient children, do not be conformed. That is conduct, your behavior. Do not be conformed to the passions, your feelings, your desires, of your former ignorance. That is your flesh. Ignorance leads to passions of the flesh, which leads to conformity to the world. So what you are leads to what you feel and desire, which leads to ultimately what you do. And because it's ignorance, that is why the truth of God's word is so necessary for us. It's because the more we see the truth of God's word in our lives, the more clearly we're able to see our passions and our desires and our affections to be able to rightly categorize them and to be able to say no to the ones that are not reviving our soul and to be able to say yes to the ones that are. Again, what did we say about God's Word a couple of weeks ago is that it is the only thing that is living and active, able to discern the thoughts and intentions of your heart. You are not the best person suitable to discern your own thoughts and intentions of your heart. Even though you are the one who talks to you more than anybody, and even though you know yourself better than anybody, you do not know yourself better than the Word of God knows you. It's just true. And so if you want to know yourself 
deeper and more intimately. Know God's word deeper and more intimately. It's just true. And so here's what I'm trying to say. Actions matter. Actions reveal what you feel, desire, which in turn reveals your identity, who you are. It's not enough to say, I'm a Christian with my mouth. It's not enough to say, I'm team Jesus with no life or conduct that matches up with it. It's not, it's not enough just to wear the Christian t-shirt and say, I'm, I'm with Jesus, I believe in Jesus, but what I do does not match up with it. This is what James says in 122 verses 25. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and then he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You can see here something that's kind of working out. He's using an illustration of, of a person standing in front of a mirror. If you are a Christian who just says you're a Christian but does not act on the fact that you are a Christian, is like a person who looks at themselves in the mirror and then walks away and completely forgets what they look like. Completely forgets who they are. And that's why, again, when it comes to this idea of forgetfulness, he draws it in line with knowing the perfect law, knowing the law of the Lord. That the only way in which you will look into the mirror and then walk away from the mirror remembering who you are so that you can act on who you are is if it is channeled through the law of the Lord, if it is channeled through the Word of God. So, in order for you to look in the mirror and know that you are a Christian and then be able to walk away from that mirror and remember that you are a Christian is the more that you have God's Word in your mind and in your heart and meditated on and memorized and known is the only way that you will not forget. It's the only way that you will not forget. And then because you're not forgetting, you're then able to do what His Word has called you to do because it's, it's who you are. It's who you are. Do your actions match up with your beliefs, feelings, passions, desires? Why do actions matter and how do they have to do or what do they have to do with evangelism? Back to our main text, verse 12, 1 Peter 2, verse 12. Keep your, that is you the saints, keep your conduct, that is the actions and behavior, among the Gentiles. That's just the Bible's way of including all sinners. All right? You've got Jews, which are the specific lineage of Abraham, 12 tribes of Israel. You've got the Jews' bloodline, which are sinners themselves. But then you have the Gentiles, which is anybody who's not Jewish. So Gentiles are considered, at this point, in this context, just all sinners. All sinners. So keep your saints, conduct, your actions, behavior, among the sinners, honorable. In the Greek, that just means beautiful. Keep it beautiful so that, that's the bridge here, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and then glorify God on the day of visitation. So according to this verse, first and foremost, all the odds are stacked against you. The non-believers already speak or slander against you as evildoers. 
They view you as evil doers. They view Christians as on the wrong side of history. They view Christians as contributing nothing of value to society, but rather as hateful, as bigots, as narrow-minded, as the, kind of the dogs of society. They think they literally contribute nothing beneficial to the progressive society that is getting better and better and better. And so here, Christians have just a, a bad rep. They're just starting from the bottom. And God's word informs us in the way in which not only can we silence their slander against us, but even convince them to join us in glorifying God by the way in which we conduct ourselves. So how do we conduct ourselves so that the slander goes away? How do we conduct ourselves so that they see we are not evildoers but good doers and join us in glorifying God? 1 Peter 2.15 puts it this way. For this is the will of God. That's one of the biggest questions we always ask, right? What's God's will for my life? What is the will of God? What's his plans? He's telling you, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance, uh, the ignorance of foolish people. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. When Peter says doing good, he does not, mental, he, he does not simply say, just join them in whatever they're doing so that they might see that it would be good. Because they have opinion on what they think is good. He's not saying join them in what they are doing that is good. That seems like an obvious point, but unfortunately too many Christians and churches fall into the philosophy that to be in the world but not of the world means we are to be like the world, just slightly better. I mean, let's be honest. I think a lot of Christians and a lot of churches build ministry on let's be in the world, and like the world, but just a little bit better than them. That's a mentality. That's a philosophy. And unfortunately, many churches seek to be like culture in order to relate to culture or break down the barriers, walls that separate the church from culture. In their zeal for converts, seeker-sensitive churches may convert God's message into a form more likely to impress them rather than surprise them. Like we as Christians are not trying to impress the world. We're trying to surprise the world. Our goal should not be to impress the world, but to surprise the world. Where do you get that from? I'll show you. We are not to join them in their sin, but rather proactively be involved in doing the kinds of things that surprise them. This is what 1 Peter 4, 3-4 says. And I'm using a lot of 1 Peter since it is kind of the theme and context of this passage for us. So this is how he elaborates on this. 1 Peter 4, 3-4 says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they then malign you. They speak critically of you. That's the ESV version of it. I actually like the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible version of this. It's not blasphemy to use another translation, but I will read this one for you. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do. That's the 
Time that is past suffices, because that's just kind of a hard phrase to understand. What he's trying to say there is, there's already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do. There's been enough time sinning, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. That sums up categories for every possible sin you can think of. It falls in those categories. They are, referring to the Gentiles, sinners. They are surprised that you, saints, don't join them in the same flood of wild living. And they then slander you. Now, in having good conduct, which surprises unbelievers, it includes two things. Both not joining the sinners in wild living, which we have countless examples, but it also includes then doing good deeds. Now, what examples of good deeds do we have? And I tried to just pull them biblically here. James, for example, in our context of reading that, would at the very least say to minister to widows and orphans is good deeds. Uh, you, and we figure that out in our specific context. In addition, Jesus washing the disciples' feet is not in itself just some kind of spiritual uh, ceremonial thing that he was doing for the disciples. It was a practical deed of helpfulness. Like him washing the disciples' feet was because they wore sandals, or as my kids say, Jesus' sandals. They wore sandals everywhere they go, and they don't have sidewalks and roads like what we have today. They're walking on dirt everywhere they go, so their feet, their ankles up to their knees are just caked in dirt and mud. And so Jesus washing their feet, although is spiritually Jesus coming to serve us, it is also Him providing a practical, practical deed of helpfulness. And so we are, in our context, to look for practical deeds of helpfulness for those around us. Jesus providing Subway to 5,000 people is a practical deed of helpfulness. They were hungry. If you didn't catch that, five loaves, two fish, all right? He's providing food for 5,000 people. They were hungry. He looks around and He sees a need and he physically meets the need. And so we are to look around our context, to look around our neighborhoods, to look around our neighbors, and look for ways in which we can provide for them a practical need. The story of the Good Samaritan, when helping someone who's in a crisis on the side of the road, is a way in which you can look for an opportunity to help someone out. Now, hopefully they don't stab you. That'd be great. And if you're new to the district, you can ask me about that later. Um, but it's a way in which you can help someone out. I think we need to look for ways to serve that surprise so that, as our text says, they can see. This type of conduct that is honorable, beautiful leads to Gentiles glorifying God. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable that they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the third thing is, your witness is what God does. And this is important because the first two, who you are is not going to bring them to know Christ. And what you do is not going to bring them to know Christ, but it's a part of it. The ultimate completion of this is that your witness is what God does. Just like Ephesians 2, when I said earlier, you don't become a chosen race, you don't become a royal priesthood through anything that you do. It's God's gift to you. It's His grace to you. Same thing here. Your witness is ultimately what God does. 
So the process here is we are slandered. We then do more good deeds. They begin to see, and then they glorify God. So there has to be some type of connection between them seeing that brings them to then glorifying God. And that's what I want to kind of break down for you here at the end here before I become guilty of sounding like our good deeds save people. What is God's role in this? How is our witness ultimately His doing? Again, remember, we are starting at the bottom. And now we're here. <laughs> um, they consider us evildoers and are slandering about us, speaking critically of us, and considering us evil in nature. They do not like you. Plain and simple. So Peter tells us, as I already read in verses 2, 15, this is the will of God that by doing good you might put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So doing good silences. Doing good begins to frustrate the slanderers because they begin to see that their slandering actually has no grounds. That's part of it. The second thing, 1 Peter 3.16 says this, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ might be put to shame. So not only are they being silenced, to where they're frustrated, no longer slandering you, but in their slandering of you, considering you evildoers, there's something going on within them that they also now start to feel ashamed or this guilt of slandering you because they are seeing something worked out of you in your good works that is now drawing them into God, drawing them to Christ, to where they feel guilty about what's going on. They feel guilty about what they are doing, what they are saying. Doing good puts to shame slanderers. Not only do they no longer have a case to slander you, but they begin to experience shame and slandering. That only happens under one circumstance. There is a heart transplant. There's a heart transplant. 1 Peter 1.3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This moment is what's happening to help some sinners, some Gentiles, begin to feel shame and silencing from our good deeds and the proclamations of the excellencies of Him who, who drawn us from darkness into His marvelous light. When these things are happening, there is a heart transplant also happening among them where God is causing them to be born again. Now you heard me teach on this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about Him granting us a new heart as He removes the heart of what? Anybody remember? He removes, this is an Ezekiel passage, a Deuteronomy passage. He removes the heart of Stone, thank you, and gives us a heart of flesh. Now, it's not the same flesh that we're referring to as the passions of the flesh that we are to abstain from, but it's a heart of flesh that is no longer dead or stone-like, but is living and active. It's breathing. It is an internal significant heart because it's a new identity in Christ. So he is granting us this new heart. This is happening in the life of a person who is seeing the, pro, the, the proclamation of the gospel and the good deeds of the saints, the conduct that is honorable among them. And God is wooing them, drawing them in as He is granting them a new heart, as He is giving them the gift of His grace to save them. To save them. Now there's an interesting word that He uses here at the end, on the day of visitation. 
what in the world does that mean? What is the day of visitation? Is it the second coming of Christ where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord? So surely they will be at that point silenced. They will be put to shame. And they will have no choice but to glorify Him because they see Him rightly as who He is. And here's something to, again, draw on, is that on that day of judgment, for those who are the chosen race, the royal priesthood, we will come together with God and we will be brought into eternal life with Him in heaven because of who we are in Him. And for those who aren't in Him, who those who aren't the chosen race, who aren't the royal priesthood, who aren't the holy nation, they will see Him and here where they rejected Him, there, they will have no option to reject Him. They will see Him clearly for who He is. And even though here they did not bow and submit, there they will. But there, they will head off to hell. So this passage here, if that was the day of visitation that is being referenced, then there's no need for our good deeds for them to see. There's no need for it. Because there, they will see it clearly. So I believe that this idea of day of visitation is not referring to Christ's second coming. When all will see and all will glorify Him whether or not they want to. And here's why I think that this is more about the day of visitation that is happening at the moment of a person's salvation. This is why I believe that. i got three things for that. Again, one is I already said it. There's no need for Gentile sinners to see your good deeds in order to glorify God if they're going to see that one day eventually. The second one is in Acts 15, 14. Peter, again, who wrote this book, 1 Peter, in Acts 15, 14, Peter spoke about God visiting the Gentiles when he was talking to the Jerusalem council about Cornelius and his household coming to know Jesus, becoming Christians. This was the first saving of Gentiles outside of the Jewish uh, nation, the Jewish religion at this point. So up until that point, the gospel, and you can trace this throughout the book of Acts, um, is in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. It was just Jews coming to know Jesus. The first time that it goes beyond Jews is Cornelius and his household when Peter preaches the gospel to them and they come to know Christ. Peter references that time as God visiting them. In Luke 1.68, Luke who also wrote the book of Acts, he records Zechariah's prophecy several hundred years before as he says this, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And this prophecy is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus' first coming to provide salvation and reconciliation rather than his second coming. And so again, this idea of visitation doesn't have to just mean judgment day one time, but can also mean God visiting you with the gospel at the moment of your salvation. And so that's why I believe that all of these things coming together is a process of evangelism for us. So let me just, I'm going to read a paragraph that just puts this all together. Because you are God's saints, God is calling you to abstain from the passions which wage war against your soul. He is commanding you to put those away and replace them 
with passions which revive your soul and feed your desires and affections for Jesus. By doing this, you will be able to keep your conduct and your actions honorable and beautiful among the non-believing and even hostile people in your life by surprising them with your good works and your lack of sin. So that when they see your good deeds, your Christ-like behavior, they will be silenced and begin to feel the weight of shame because they are rightly seeing that you are a servant of Christ and that you are not an evildoer but a good doer. And in that newfound humility, God might visit them through the proclamation of His excellencies, that is the gospel, and with mercy, God might visit them and grant them new birth. That is forgiveness and eternal life with Him. And therefore, they will join us in glorifying God now that they have too been transferred from sinner to saint, from darkness into His marvelous light. This is, I believe, the best biblical defense for lifestyle evangelism that aligns with the will of God. As he says, this is my will for you. So your beliefs absolutely matter. The proclamation of the gospel absolutely matters. Romans 10 does not contradict this. They must hear the gospel proclaimed. But also, they must be surprised that your good deeds match up with what you are proclaiming. So that when they hear and are surprised and are filled with shame and guilt, which is necessary for sinners to recognize the need for a Savior, they then trust and believe Him for who He is, Lord of their life, Christ. So even though I know for many, sharing the gospel is an area where you need to grow with boldness and frequency, and yes and amen, that is something that we all need to grow in, and, and I've even... Um, it hurts my ears at times when I've heard this, uh, even within our church. Uh, and it's been a couple of years, but I've heard people say, like, you know, I just, I just feel like my call to the church is within the church, not outside of the church. And that's just unbiblical. That's unbiblical. We are all called. Like, there's not just the gift of the evangelist. Now, are there people gifted in evangelism when it comes to just, I mean, they, they just... Every time they're out, like if someone comes up to them and says, hey, you having a good day? It's like for them, that's just a, a flag that I need to share the gospel with this person. Like there's, there's people who operate that way. And then there are other people who operate from the mindset of like, I'm going to take five years to get to know this person. <laughs> I'm going to get into the depths of their soul and I'm going to figure out the best way to evangelize them. I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm just saying both are necessary. I'm saying us seeing that there are non-believers out there who will come to a day of judgment, who will either spend eternity in heaven or eternity in hell, that matters. Sinner, saint, matters. And we want souls revived. We want souls restored. We want people to know Jesus because He's greater than anything else this world has to offer. That's why the Apostle Paul is able to say that I, everything that I possibly had to gain in this world, I count it rubbish. I can't, which, 
in its original context and language is dung. I count it like it's, that's why I refer to it as goose poop because it's just scattered everywhere in my yard and in the road. And so every time I see goose poop, I look at it and I say, that's what the world has to offer me. And it's not worthy of anything. Jesus is everything that I might gain Christ and know him. There's surpassing knowledge of him. We want everyone to know that. We want everyone to know Jesus. And so what you proclaim matters, but what you embody and what you live out and the conduct and behaviors and actions matter just as much. They matter just as much. So I hope that your conduct is beautiful and honorable and Christ-exalting so that the world may see your good deeds and in turn glorify God on the day he visits with them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for sending Jesus to be the perfect person who embodies exactly what we're talking about today. Yes, Jesus showed up on the scene and one of the first sermons that he preached was repent and be baptized. Turn from the way in which you're living and follow me. Jesus proclaimed the truth. He taught the truth. But in addition to teaching the truth, Jesus was a doer of good deeds. He was a doer of good deeds. He, he healed the sick. He fed those who were hungry. He washed the feet of his disciples. And so we're just asking, Lord, that you would strengthen the passions and affections within us to be more like Jesus, to faithfully proclaim the gospel and to faithfully live out a conduct and behavior that represents the gospel, that surprises those around us, that we do not give ourselves over to sinful behavior, but rather we are a light in a dark world. God, make us more like Jesus. Make us more like him. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at